Well, what a delight to be with you here at Aboit. Um, you know, I find it interesting that I've heard about your church for quite a few years and have actually recommended your church to people who ask, you know, what, what churches would you recommend in the Fort Wayne area? But this is the first time we've had the privilege of worshiping with you. And so thank you so much for including us today. It is truly a delight to be here, to worship with you, to learn with you, and to see what God's going to do among us. Uh, we're glad for the testimony of this church over the years here in Fort Wayne and really around the world as the Lord continues to send people out. We're, we're glad we're here with you. Let me ask those of you who are believers, if you found yourself on occasion in your quieter, reflective moments thinking to yourself something like this, I really want to change. I, I really need to change. And maybe the Holy Spirit's prompting something in your heart and you begin to evaluate things like this. You say, I, I, I just want to be less proud. I, I want to be more humble. I want to be less defensive. I, I want to be more accepting. I want to be less fearful. I want to be more full of faith. I want to be less angry. I want to be more forgiving. I want to be more concerned with the reputation of Christ than I am the reputation of me. Have you found yourself thinking things like that at times? I really want to change. I want to reflect Christ more clearly day by day. My question is, how does that happen? How does that happen? How do we increasingly reflect Christ in our daily lives? How do I change? Now, over the years of just being a Christian and over the years of pastoring people, I've noticed how easy it is for people to gravitate in answering that question. I've, I've run into plenty of people that think, I, I really want to change. I, I think I'm just going to have to, you know, grit my Christian teeth and try harder, you know. I'm going to discipline myself here, and I'm going to be a better Christian, you know. Maybe I need to just add some more rules onto my life, you know. If I could just discipline myself and have all these rules I'm going to follow, then I would be growing as a Christian. Then I would be more reflective of Christ, right? And interestingly, I've seen other Christians that go almost to the opposite end of the spectrum, and they say, I think what I need to do is just let go and let God. You know, if I'm going to change, he's going to have to do it, right? So I'm just going to let go and let him do it. I'll just go passive. Here's the question I want us to explore today, and that is how am I supposed to live for Christ in this sin-infected, curse-infiltrated world in which we live. It's not easy living the Christian life in today's world, is it? The world's in opposition. The world tries to trip us up. Join me, please. We're going to look in God's Word to find an answer for this. Look with me at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And as you turn to that or tap to that, whatever you do, uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, let me give you a heads up. 
In the original language, this is all one sentence. And if you read it in the original, you almost want to say, Paul, take a breath. (laughs) (laughs) It's all one verse. And it is one sentence. And it is so packed. It is so packed. I know we have some folks in the room that love reading the old dead guys, you know, the old Puritans or whatever. And it's interesting that a Puritan by the name of Thomas Manton preached, I kid you not, I have a copy of this, he preached 22 sermons on this one sentence, 22 sermons. And some of you have a knot in your stomach right now, and you're thinking, what's Larry going to do? (laughs) You're concerned that you might miss lunch. You're concerned you might miss the game tonight. (laughs) We could be here for a while. Well, let me assure you, I'm not going to try to mimic Manton of hundreds of years ago. Uh, We're going to, in the next 40 minutes or so, look at this sentence, Titus 2, 11 through 14. We want to get at the heart of it. And the question on our hearts is this, how do I change? Follow along in your Bible now as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The Word of God says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, you paying attention to your Bible here? What's the first word? What is the first word of that passage we just read? It's the word for. And that's obviously a connecting word, isn't it? So if you're starting off with the word for, what, what's on your mind? <laughs> well, what, what, what comes ahead of that? What comes before that? Now, I think some of you are familiar with maybe a verse or two in the first 10 verses of Titus 2. I know some of you ladies have probably been in Bible studies on the Titus 2 women. Uh, maybe some of the other folks here have read this passage too. It's fascinating to me what Paul's connecting to here. If you read the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2, you'll see the apostle instructing his protege, a younger man named Titus, who he had left in the rough neighborhood of the island of Crete. Crete was a rough place to live. It was known, even in non-Christian circles, as a rough place. And here Titus is there to help establish churches across that island in the Mediterranean that's called Crete. And so Paul wants Titus, he's instructing Titus to teach the people the gospel. But not only to teach the gospel in its, um, in its theological form, but then to apply it in ways that gets traction in their daily lives. I don't know how many times I read Titus chapter 1 before it dawned on me, what the apostle's doing here. Look at verse 1 of Titus 2. I'm just going to swing past this quickly. He says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so he's already mentored Titus. He's shown Titus what the gospel is, what the gospel's about, who the gospel is about. And then he says, Now, Titus, as you are training people, especially training leaders in that rough neighborhood, (laughs) 
I want you to teach them what accords with that. Or we might say in our modern American, teach the people what difference that makes. Teach the people how the gospel is applied to our lives in life, life transformational ways. And if you let your eyes drift through those verses, you'll notice he addresses a, a people at different stations of life. He addresses old men. Hey, I qualify. He says, old guys, this is what the gospel looks like in your daily life. Now, for you seasoned ladies here, um, for older ladies, ladies, this is what the gospel looks like in your station of life, your season of life as an older Christian woman. For you younger ladies, this is how the gospel looks when it gets traction in your daily life. Young men, this is what the gospel looks like when it gets traction in your life. Do you see what the apostle's doing there in Titus 2, the first 10 verses? He says, Titus, teach the people the gospel makes a difference in everyday life. The watching world is going to be skeptical about the message of Jesus Christ. They're going to be asking questions like, well, what difference does it make anyway? How does the gospel change anything? And Titus, you train the people to answer that question by how they live. You teach the old guys this. This is the kind of effect the gospel has on an older man. He's no grouchy older man. He's sound in faith. He's sound in love. Show the old guys that they're to stand out among their, their peers as affected, transformed by the gospel. Show that to the older women, the younger women, the younger guys. Show them, Titus. So the watching world understands that the gospel is effectual. It changes people. When I read this passage, I can't help but notice different times where Paul kind of tips his hand on this. You look at the end of verse 5. He says, that the word of God may not be reviled. You look at the end of verse 8. It says, so that an opponent might have be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You get to the end of verse 10. It says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, Titus, show ordinary people. How many of us feel like rather ordinary people? My hand's up. You know, show the people ordinary Christians that they can actually live extraordinary lives when they're empowered by the extraordinary gospel, that the extraordinary gospel of Jesus Christ can get such effectiveness in the life of an ordinary person that that ordinary person, as he lives in this fallen world, ends up adorning the gospel, ends up getting the attention of the watching world when the watching world says, look at him, look at that old guy. He's so different than the other old guys. He's not grouchy and mean and demanding. He's sound in faith. He's sound in love. Look at that older woman. She's not into herself. She's pouring herself into younger women. Look at that. Look at those young ladies. How sweet they are. How they're showing love for their husbands and their children in a way that just gets our attention. Look at those young men that are modeling self-discipline. It's hard to explain. He's saying, Titus, show the people that the gospel makes a difference in ordinary people's lives 
on an everyday basis. And so as ordinary people, we read that and we think, sign me up, that sounds good. But how's that supposed to happen? How am I supposed to be one of those ordinary people living an extraordinary life empowered by the extraordinary gospel? How, how can I be transformed that way? Four, <laughs> now it comes verses 11 through 14. He's going to explain how that happens. He says four. He's unpacking this now. He's going to explain this is how it happens. For the grace of God has appeared. Now, when you look at this long sentence, I, I, we read it out loud, didn't we? But, you know, as you read that, you realize there's so much here. This, I'm a simple-minded person. <laughs> I think what helped me was to realize Paul's writing this sentence referring to three different eras. He talks about the era that will be, he talks about the era that was, he's talking about the era that is. So these three eras, or we could even use a big word today, we could call them epiphanies. That's just a fun word to say, isn't it? Epiphany. <laughs> you know what an epiphany is? <laughs> epiphany is when something is shown, something shows up. Whoa, there's an epiphany. And in this case, it's like, when Christ shows up in special power. So three different eras. We could think of them chronologically as the past, the present, and the future. Uh, there's a saying that goes around in our culture saying, start with the end in mind. That's not actually a bad piece of advice. Why don't we do that? Why don't we start with the end in mind? Let's look at, the, let's look at tomorrow. We'll begin with tomorrow. That's verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to answer this out loud, but I would like to answer it, at least in your head. And that is this. How often do you think about the return of Jesus Christ? How often do you think about it? I was struck recently how infrequently I think about the return of Christ. And the Lord challenged me to change that way. Randy Elkhorn wrote a wonderful book just called Heaven. I recommend it, actually. But he said, Randy Elkhorn said, being oblivious to eternity leaves us, listen to this, this is so wise. Being oblivious to eternity leaves us experts in the trivial and novices in the, in, excuse me, experts in the trivial and novices in the significant. Do you know what he's saying? If as Christians we lose sight of the return of Christ, if we're not thinking about the day that is yet to come, if we're not thinking about eternity, you know what happens to our paradigm? You know what happens to the way we look at life? Today becomes all that really matters. We're not thinking about the era that is yet to come. And so our whole view of life gets twisted, it gets distorted. And if we think this life is all that there really is, we give things too much importance now, and we're minimizing what is yet to come. And so big things become small, and small things become big, because we've truncated our view of life 
And all we're thinking about is now. And what can happen is we can run to the things of this world as if that's the answer when eternity awaits us. I want us to pause for a few minutes and enjoy, enjoy the Word of God, how the Apostle Paul describes the coming, the return of Jesus Christ. He calls it the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's true that Jesus is coming back. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 says, For the Lord himself, not, he's not just going to send a messenger, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be very visible, very audible. Everyone's going to see him. And what will he be like? What will, what will he look like? What will Jesus be like when he comes back? The apostle talks about glory. You know, I, I, the apostle John was used of the Holy Spirit to write the last book of the Bible, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he introduces that um, book that he wrote by telling us what he saw out there on the Isle of Patmos. Now, if you will grant me some poetic license, <laughs> I don't want to distort the Word of God, but I want us to imagine what it would be like if old Apostle John were at a Boyd Baptist today. If he were here today and Pastor Chase said, John, it's so good to have you here today. We, we've heard that you actually saw the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. Could you just take a couple minutes and tell us what that was like? And I can picture old John saying, I'll try, I'll try, I'll try to describe the indescribable. And you read Revelation chapter 1, these verses in Revelation 1, and you realize how the apostle John, it's, it's as if he's, he's grabbing his word finder and, and he's trying to find similes, trying to find analogy to describe the indescribable. And, and he says something like this. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in, in the midst of the lampstand was, was one, there was one like, like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs, his, his hair, it was, it, it was white, it was white. It was, it was white like, like wool. It was white like, like snow. And his eyes, his eyes, his, his eyes were, they were like, they were like a, a flame of, a flame of fire. And his feet, his feet were, they, they were like, they were like, like burnished bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, his, his face, it was, it, was, it was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And I fell down as though dead. 
he laid his right hand on me. And he said, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I live. I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys. I have the keys of death and Hades. I don't think John ever recovered from that day of seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. My Christian friends, that is the one we will see on that day. Paul calls Jesus here in Titus 2 our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That statement, that declaration by the Apostle Paul there through the Holy Spirit is one of the most clear statements of the Godness, the deity of Jesus Christ anywhere in the Bible. It is crystal clear that Jesus Christ is our great God and our great Savior. When Jesus comes back, he will come bringing salvation. You say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm already saved. It's true. We are already saved. Sometimes the Bible talks about salvation in the past tense, doesn't it? We can say, well, I was saved on such and such a date, or I remember this period of my life when God saved me. When we're talking about there is salvation in the past as God saved us from the penalty of our sin. When he saved us and attributed to us the righteousness of Christ and attributed to Christ our guilt, he was saving us from the penalty of sin. That's the past aspect of salvation. But the Bible also talks about salvation in the future tense. Let me read to you from Hebrews 9. And just as it was appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save, or we could translate that, bring salvation, to those who are eagerly waiting for him. What's that about? I thought I was already saved, and yet the book of Hebrews says here in chapter 9 that Jesus is going to bring salvation. Well, if you're a Christian today, you've already been saved from the penalty of your sin, but when Jesus comes back, he's going to save us from the very, from the very presence of sin. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more homesick I am for that day that hasn't come yet. As we live in this fallen world, as we see people suffering, as we see the effects of sin, as we live in a curse-filled world, we think, oh, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if, if this just could all be lifted? If, if sin and the curse could just be lifted? And it will be, my friends. When Jesus returns, the, the future epiphany, the second coming, He's going to take away sin. He's going to kill death. He's going to lift the curse. Genesis chapter 3, the beginning pages of the Bible, God pronounced a curse upon this universe because of Adam and Eve's sin. But you read the last chapter of the Bible, you read Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, and it says there will be no more curse. Aren't you hungry for that? Aren't you hungry for that? 
It says in Revelation 21 that when Jesus comes back, he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to wipe away every tear. There's not going to be any more crying, any more mourning, any more pain. There won't be any more death. He's bringing that salvation in the future. Paul calls this epiphany of glory, the epiphany of glory, Jesus coming back in the future. He calls it the blessed hope. Think about that, the blessed hope. Now, we use the word hope in rather trivial ways. Excuse me, but football fans, some of you are saying right now, I hope my team wins tonight. <laughs> you hope they win tonight. It's kind of wishful thinking, right? I, I hope my team. But when the Bible uses the word hope in this context, it's not wishful thinking. It's in the language of certainty. This is something you can count on. It's something that you anchor your soul to. That when Jesus comes back, these wonderful things are going to happen. We will see his glory. He says we're waiting for that day here and now. Now, friends, remember what Randy Alcorn said? If we lose sight of that, we tend to make big things small and small things big. If we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is coming back, and as painful as this life can be, it ain't always going to be this way. One day Jesus is coming back. He's going to lift the curse. He's going to do away with sin. He's going to kill death. Can I just wait for that? Can I, is that my blessed hope? Can I anchor my soul on that? If I lose sight of that, if I lose sight of that and I begin to think this life is all there really is, you know what I tend to do? I run to the idols of the age to somehow try to fill my empty soul. I'm going to run to this, I'm going to run to that, trying to find some sense of happiness or security or significance in life, but we run to the idols of this age and none of them can keep their promise. None of the idols of this age can ever do what they say they're going to do. And so we turn our backs on the idols of the age and we turn to Christ and we say, I know you're coming back and you will make all the wrongs right. And I don't need to grovel around the muck of this world. I don't need to go seeking to drink out of the puddles, the muddied puddles of this world, trying to satiate my thirst. I will wait for the streams of heaven and I will drink deeply there. Oh, wait, it's my blessed hope. There's so much ahead of us, it's just glorious that there will be an epiphany of glory, that Jesus is going to come and there's going to be this wonderful revelation of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. But Paul talks about another epiphany in this passage, doesn't he? He doesn't just talk about the future epiphany, but he talks about the past epiphany. If we call the future one the epiphany, the appearing of glory... Then we could talk about the past epiphany, the appearing of grace. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, that's past tense, right? Has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You know, if you just jump ahead a few sentences to chapter 3, look at verses 4 and 5. These are verses that you need to mark up in your Bible. Titus chapter 3, 4 and 5. The apostle says there, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ came to redeem us. He redeemed us out of lawlessness. 
Now, we all have different testimonies, but we all have the same testimony, don't we? <laughs> Whether you were saved as an 8-year-old or an 80-year-old, we all lived so many days in rebellion against God. We said, I don't want to listen to God. I don't want to do what God says to do. That's lawlessness. And yet when Jesus came and redeemed us, he freed us from that obsession to go our own way, to ignore God and just do what we want to do. And that cost him dearly. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 through 20 says, Knowing that you were ransomed, listen, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, things we value. Peter says those aren't worth much. <laughs> but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, there it is, an epiphany, made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And so the Apostle Paul says, Titus, show the people in Crete. Show the Christians that are living in a rough neighborhood. Not only did they can anchor their souls in the epiphany of glory yet to be revealed, but they can look back and remember the epiphany of grace that came and redeemed them out of their sinfulness. And God's made us a people belonging to him, washing away our filthy sin. And you say, well, that's all wonderful, Larry, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, but I live in the present. What about now? How am I supposed to live now? Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In the present age. That's this place. That's this time. That's the world in which we live. This world that has been infected by sin and infested with the curse. I often think of it like this. You and I are living in the era between the gardens. It's good to keep that in mind. We're living in the era between the gardens. The garden that was, what's the name of that in the Bible? The garden of, the garden of Eden. The garden that was, it's gone. It's gone. It is no more, the garden of Eden. But there's a garden yet to be revealed. And it's interesting that in the original language, you use a similar language, a paradise language. Eden was a paradise there's a paradise yet to be revealed. It's called in the Bible the new heavens and the new earth. Until Adam and Eve sinned, there was no sin, there was no curse in the garden that was lost, the Garden of Eden. And when Jesus comes back and establishes the new heavens and new earth, there won't be any sin or curse in the paradise yet to be revealed, the, the new heavens and new earth. But we're living between the gardens. We're living in this era between the gardens. And it's hard, isn't it? It's a hostile world. What, is, what are we called to do as Christians as we live in this era between the gardens? It says in verse 12, God wants us to renounce. Some of you have the NIV. I actually like the NIV translation here. It says to say no to. That God wants us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions ungodliness. What is that? What is ungodliness? It's living as if God doesn't exist, or at least God doesn't matter. That's what ungodliness. 
godliness is. Ungodliness as living as if God either doesn't exist or he doesn't matter to me. By the way, Jerry Bridges said that he thinks this is the root sin, living as if God doesn't exist or doesn't matter, ungodliness. And you read, I won't take time now, but if you read Romans chapter 1, Paul goes in a a lengthy explanation there, giving um, examples of what ungodliness is. In verse 21 of, of Romans 1, he says, For although they knew God, God had already revealed himself in creation. His power, his might is seen in creation. Even though people could see that, they, they culpably blind themselves. It'd be, it would be like, excuse my grossness here, but it would be like somebody plucking out his own eyes and then going outside on this sunny day, turning his bloody face to the sky and saying, there's no sun, I don't see any sun. And you're looking and you're saying, he's a madman. He's a madman. He plucked out his own eyes and says, there's no sun. My my friend's sin is madness. It's madness. It's a guilty plucking out of our spiritual eyes and saying, there's no God. Paul says, summarizing ungodliness in Romans 1, he says, there was no fear of God in their eyes. That's what ungodliness is. And so we live in a world where we're pressured to deny God. We're pressured, maybe not theologically to deny God, but practically to deny that God, God's word matters. God matters. You know, if you tell people, well, I believe this because of the Bible, I want to live this way because of the Bible, people say, well, that's just your opinion. Don't you go pushing that on me. You know, and, and sometimes we just kind of back off and we say, well, friends, This isn't just your opinion. This is the word of God, right? This is what God says. We're pressured into ungodliness, not only in our thinking, but in our lives. And Paul says to Titus, teach the people to say no to that. No, I will not live with ungodliness. I will not live according to worldly passions. God wants us to say no to those things. He wants to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, in this present age. He wants us to renounce those things. And interestingly, I could say it this way, he wants to say yes. What does it say in Titus 2? He wants us to say yes to self-control, of no longer living for myself, but living for God, to upright living. That has the idea of living with integrity, of fairness, and listen, and godly living. So what is godly living? Now, You weren't asleep five minutes ago. You know the answer to this. (laughs) Ungodliness is living as if God doesn't exist or doesn't matter. So godly living is living as if God does exist and God does matter. He says, I want you to say no to that, and I want you to say yes to this. Say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and say yes, yes. What I want is integrity. What I want is godly living. I want to live in the presence of God. I want to live for his pleasure. I want to live under the smile of God. I want to live for the smile of God. That's godliness. So we're still asking the same question. How's that supposed to happen? How's that supposed to happen? Where are you and I ever going to get the the strength 
Where are you and I ever going to get the motivation? Where are you and I ever going to get the gumption to say no to those things and yes to those things? What's going to fuel us? What's going to fuel us, strengthen us, enable us, motivate us to live godly lives? The answer may surprise you. It tells you here in this verse. What's the first word, at least in ESV, what's the first word of verse 12? Training. And Paul uses the language here of a trainer, um, since people are very sports conscious today. I'll use the word coach. God's given us a coach. He's given us a coach to teach us, to train us. Or if you're not into sports, you could think of a music teacher, a dance teacher, an acting teacher, someone is going to train you, someone is going to coach you in that particular skill. What has God given us, and you can answer me from the Bible here in Titus 2, what has God given us to coach us in living godly lives? The grace of God. Now, now friends, I, if I'm stepping on toes, I hope I'm doing it in love and I'm doing it to help. But for a long time, in my Christian experience as a young man, I, I lived for a long time as if um, God's grace saved me, but it's going to be rules of some kind that sanctify me. I actually heard a preacher say one time years ago, it's the grace of God that saves us, and it's the law of God that sanctifies us. Guess what? That doesn't work. <laughs> You, you can put all kind of rules around yourself, but that doesn't necessarily change your heart. It's the grace of God that trains us, trains us to say no to these things and yes to those things. It's the grace of God. You know, I think of a couple of people in the past, one in the distant past and one in the more recent past. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, said that Christians ought to swim in grace. That, that's a beautiful analogy, isn't it? Swim in grace. That should be the environment in which we live. That we live in the grace of God. We think about the grace of God. We enjoy the grace of God. We think about the grace of God. We think of the implications of living in the grace of God. In the more recent past, our, our dear departed friend Jerry Bridges said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. That the gospel, the grace of God, has a training effect on our lives. It teaches us, it corrects us, it encourages us. Let me just give you a few implications or applications of that to launch you down this path of this is new territory for you. So let's say that your past, as a non-Christian, your past, you were given over to a particular kind of sin. Um, it could be lust, it could be anger, it could be fear, um, whatever it is. But you think of your B.C. days, your before Christ days. When you think of your B.C. days, there were particular sins that just seemed to have their talons in your heart. You know, just almost controlled you. But then God saved you in his amazing grace. He saved you. And now you find yourself saying, I want to follow him. I, I want to live a godly life in this present age. And your old sins say, hey, hey, get back here. Get back here. You're mine. 
Come back to the pornography. Come back to the anger. Come back to this. Come back to that. The fear. And you remember that grace trains you to say no. And you say, no, I will not. You're not my master anymore. I've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and I am his. And you say no to those old temptations. You say, no, I don't belong to you anymore. I belong to my king, Jesus Christ. It teaches you to say no. Or maybe you're prone to melancholy. You're prone to discouragement and depression. You think, oh, look at me. I, I failed again. I came up short again. You know, I'm no Christian. And, and you just feel defeated and you feel like this cloud is hanging over your head. And you just live that way, moping through life, even though you've professed faith in him. How does the grace of God teach you to say no to your tendency toward melancholy and fear. I think of Romans chapter 8, where it says there is, oh, this is glorious, my friends. There is now, therefore, some of you know this verse, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to whom? To those who are in Christ Jesus, that's the gospel. And you think about my reputation, and if sometimes I picture, sometimes I picture this big barrel in heaven with my name on it, and, and all the wrath of God that I earned, all the wrath of God that I earned by offending him, by offending him with my actions, by offending him with my negligence, we're in that barrel. And then God saved me. What happened? to the barrel with my name on? What happened to all that righteous judgment of God that I earned? What happened to it? What happened to it? It was poured out on Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God. We sang that this morning. Those were glorious gospel songs. The righteous wrath that I earned was poured out upon his innocent son in my stead. In my place condemned, he stood. And I want to ask you, my discouraged Christian friend, how much of God's wrath is remaining in your barrel? How much? Not a drop, not a drop. What happened to it? It was all, do you hear me? It was all poured out on your Savior in your place. There's no cloud over your head. There's no condemnation hanging over you. The grace of God teaches you. It trains you to go back to the gospel. You preach the gospel to yourself every day. And when you feel the clouds encroaching, you say, oh no, oh no, there is no condemnation over my head. Jesus Christ bore it in my place. And you smile. You smile because of the gospel. It's the grace of God. Do you see what I'm saying? It is the grace of God that trains us 
to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to godliness and upright living. It, it's the grace of God. We swim in that. We preach that to ourselves every day. I would summarize it this way. Remind yourself every day whose you are. <laughs> Remind yourself every day whose you are. You've been bought with a price. You've been bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus. You're his. You're his. He saved you in the past. He is saving you now from the power of sin and temptation on your life. It's a process, yes. But he's in the process, we could say, of, of eroding the power that sin has in your life. And one day, he will save us from the very presence of sin at the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So fellow Christians, remember, we're living in this era between the gardens. We're living in a fallen world, and it can be hard. But God hasn't abandoned us. He's not left us as orphans. He's given us a spirit who reminds us of these gospel truths. And as we struggle, we all have days. Some have more days than others where we struggle. Keep going back to the gospel. Keep going back to the grace that he's shown you in Jesus Christ. You preach the gospel to yourself every day. For those of you that are not Christians yet, let me say to you, you can come to him today. One of the last sentences in the whole Bible is this. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take of the free gift of the water of life. Amen. Amen.